Today we're going to talk about Jesus, fear and faith. We don't like to talk about our fears usually, but I suspect it's only the liar who claims to be fearful of nothing. We all have lots and lots of different fears. We're fearful of failing, we're fearful of conflict, maybe we're fearful of sickness or being incapacitated or getting older or dying or maybe of a loved one dying. We're fearful sometimes about the future. We're fearful of getting hurt either physically or emotionally. We're fearful sometimes of being alone. Now it's not bad to have fears. There are things that one should be fearful of. I don't know if you've seen the documentary Free Solo about Alex Honnold who free climbed this incredible mountain, El Capitan in the US. It's a thousand meters of climbing going straight up. And he did it with no rope. That's right, he climbed a thousand meters up with absolutely no rope. In fact, in part of this documentary, they put him inside an MRI machine, I think it was, to look at the fear part of his brain. And he actually, they actually discovered that he's literally fearless. His, the part of his brain doesn't light up when he's shown fearful images or when he does fearful things. Now that's great for free climbing, but it's not actually good in life. Fears are there for our protection. But it is true that we can get trapped by our fears. We can get hemmed in by them. And that's not good. If we're caught by fears that really should have no particular power over us. So my question today is how does Jesus and knowing Jesus address our fears. What's the connection between Jesus, fear and faith? And we're going to do this by looking at a section of Mark's account of Jesus' life, his teaching, his death and his resurrection from chapter 4 verse 35 of Mark's account through to the end of chapter 6. First of all, let's look at what Jesus does in this section. Mark records Jesus doing a bunch of extraordinary things in this area of his account. Jesus stands up in a boat and commands the wind and the waves in the middle of a storm to be still and they obey him. I mean, that's incredible. It's extraordinary. Moving on in the section, then Jesus heals a man who's oppressed by many unclean spirits. He then heals a woman who's got a seemingly intractable bleeding problem that she's had for 12 years. He then raises a dead girl to life again. Extraordinary. We see him teaching in his home synagogue and yet them really taking offense at him. We see him sending out his 12 disciples to share this message and encourage others to repent. We see him miraculously feeding 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And then to cap it all off in the final scene in this section, we see Jesus walking on top of the water. Now, these are extraordinary events and they all turn out to be very significant. But you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, they're so extraordinary, they're not believable. Can we actually take these seriously? Well, I just want to say that actually, if you respect the historical record, then yes, you do need to take that Jesus did these things very seriously. Jesus was known even outside of the biblical record. He was known as a miracle worker, a, a worker of wonders. Uh, you can go and look this up later, but Joseph Josephus in, in uh, Jewish antiquities, who was writing 
in the first century. He says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of surprising deeds. There's testimony even outside the Bible that Jesus was known in his day as a miracle worker, a wonder worker. So yes, we need to take the historical record of these events very seriously. And the best record we have is here in the New Testament, in the eyewitness accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So I think I want to encourage you to keep an open mind to God's intervention in our world in the person of Jesus. If the one true living God has created all things, if he sustains your life and my life, if he's created all of this out of nothing, then indeed it is possible for him to intervene in our world as we see him doing, it seems, here in the person of Jesus. And once you've opened your mind to the possibility, imagine for a moment the experience of actually witnessing these events. If you were actually there in the boat when Jesus spoke and calmed the storm, or when you saw him walking on the water, or when you saw him raise a dead person, a dead girl, to life again, what would be your reaction if you were there at the time? Well, probably your reaction would be something similar to the reaction that Mark records here in this account. Amazement. that People were astounded when Jesus did these things. But interestingly, they were also often filled with fear. So we can see that the disciples were terrified after Jesus had calmed the storm. The townspeople were afraid when they saw the man who'd been healed from the unclean spirit sitting calmly amongst them. The woman who'd been healed from the bleeding problem is trembling with fear when Jesus wants to know who it is who's reached out and touched him. And the disciples are terrified and afraid when they see Jesus walking on the water. It all makes perfect sense if you can imagine being there yourself and witnessing these events. Yes, actually, you probably would be afraid. But then this prompts a particular question for those who are there, as it would, I imagine, for us if we were there. That is, who is this guy? What what is actually going on here? Who is this man who is doing these extraordinary things? And this is exactly the response of the disciples when Jesus calms the storm. Who is this? They ask. And right throughout this section of Mark's account, the real question is, what is Jesus? who is Jesus? What is Jesus' real identity? So, for example, it's introduced by the disciples when they ask this question after the calming of the storm, who is this? But then it's explicit again by the questions people ask when Jesus visits his hometown. They say, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that is being given him? That he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And again, the question is raised explicitly a bit later in chapter 6, where some, like King Herod himself, are questioning about who this Jesus is. Is he John the Baptist, back from the dead? Is he Elijah, the Old Testament prophet returned? Or is he some other new prophet? but like the ones that Israel had received in the past. So asking the question when you see Jesus' amazing acts, that's not so hard. Who is this guy? But trying to answer that question is a bit harder. And the key is to have the right backdrop in place if you want to make sense of what Jesus is doing. 
Now we all understand about virtual backgrounds now because we've all been on Zoom for so long. And when you choose a virtual background, what you're actually doing is you're choosing a framework by which you invite people to interpret yourself. So sometimes I choose a, a backdrop which has you know waves and a surfer on it. And probably I'm telling you at that point, this is where I wish I could be. Sometimes I choose the bookshelves. That's when I'm sort of giving vent to my studious or nerdy side. Sometimes I might put the EU logo there because I'm speaking in a particular context and I'm, I'm giving you that information by the backdrop. But if I've just got a blank backdrop, if I've just got just whiteness, well then it's, it's harder to interpret who I am and what I'm doing and the significance of those things. Well, the same is true with Jesus. If we have no backdrop in place when we see Jesus do these incredible things, then the interpretation can run completely wild. Years ago I was chatting to a non-Christian friend and uh, we cut a deal. He agreed to read Mark's account of Jesus' life and teaching and his death and resurrection. He'd read Mark's gospel if, in return, I read a book of his choosing. He got the better deal. I mean, Mark's gospel only takes a short time of time to read. It's fairly short, whereas the book he gave me had hundreds of pages. But the, the novel he gave me to read was an interpretation of Jesus. It was a novel, and it was claiming in this novel that the reason Jesus could do all of these amazing things that he's recorded as doing is because actually he was an alien from out of space come amongst us. If you have no backdrop and you're just looking at what Jesus does, well then your imagination can run wild and your interpretation can be completely unbounded. But see, there is a proper backdrop, a proper background to put in place if you want to understand Jesus. And that's the Old Testament scriptures. When we read Jesus' actions with that Old Testament backdrop in place, then we start to get some surprising answers to who is this man. Let's think about for a moment when Jesus commands the winds and the waves. Notice this from Psalm 107. Let me read it out to you. Others went out on the sea in ships. The Lord spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. In their peril, their courage melted away. Does this sound a little bit like the disciples in the boat in the middle of the storm? They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wits end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for humankind. See, when you put Psalm 107 in as the backdrop, it's clear that the, it's only the one true living God, the Lord, who has the power to calm the waves and the storm with a word. But now here is that same power and authority present in Jesus. What about when Jesus walks on the water? Again, when you put in the Old Testament backdrop, only the one true living God can walk on the waves. This time from Psalm 77. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. 
Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That is, it's only the one true living God, the Lord, who can walk on the waves. He's the one which saved his people during the exodus from Egypt by making a path through the sea. And now we see that same power present here in Jesus. Moreover, the other actions of Jesus in these encounters paints a very similar picture. Who miraculously fed the crowds in the wilderness during the exodus? It was the Lord God who provided the food. And now Jesus does it when he feeds 5,000 people, starting with just five loaves and two fish. Who was it who provided cleansing for those who were ritually unclean under the law given during the Exodus? Well, it's only the Lord God who makes people clean. Under Jewish law, whoever touched a person, if they were unclean, became unclean themselves, but not here. When Jesus touches or is touched by either the woman who had the bleeding problem or Jairus' dead daughter, instead of the uncleanness being transmitted to him, he heals them, he renders them clean. Only the Lord God has that cleansing power. Who created the 12 tribes in Israel? It was the Lord God. The Lord gave Israel 12 sons, grew them into 12 tribes, and then brought them together in the Exodus. And yet here is Jesus, who sends out the 12 his specially chosen apostles. And in fact, the number 12 is conspicuously present throughout these encounters. The woman was bleeding for 12 years. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. There are 12 apostles sent out by Jesus. There are 12 baskets of food left over after Jesus feeds the 5,000. That number 12 calls to mind the whole nation of Israel. And Jesus is doing something that the Lord God had done back in Exodus. Jesus is not just establishing a new people of God, but actually he's claiming an authority to be able to establish a new people of God, which only God himself had authority to do. Finally, who called himself I am in the Exodus as he passed by his chosen witness? Well, it was the Lord God who did that in Exodus 34, when he revealed himself, announced his name, I am, to Moses. And now Jesus uses the same name, I am, when he says, it is I, that's that phrase, I am, when he goes to pass by his disciples when they're in the boat on the lake. Once you put all this together, what's the answer to the disciples' question? Who is this man? Well, the answer is, Jesus is the Lord God, come amongst us to effect a new and more profound exodus, a new and more profound deliverance for the new and expanded people of God. But once we've answered that question, like it does for the disciples, it turns the spotlight back on us. How are we now going to respond to this? Mark brings this out. Jesus turns a challenge to his disciples when he calms the storm. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That is, will they be driven by their fear of the storm or will they entrust themselves to Jesus in faith? That's the basic choice with which Jesus presents us. Will it be fear or faith in him who has the power over whatever it is that makes us afraid? Jesus makes the same point to Jairus. When Jairus is confronted with the news that his daughter has now died and with the advice that 
Maybe he shouldn't bother Jesus anymore because surely now all hope is lost. Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Or that's the same word, have faith. Same basic choice, fear or reach out to Jesus in faith. And that's what the woman with the bleeding problem did. She reached out to touch Jesus in faith. Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. So there's two take home points from this. First, the antidote to fear is to reach out to the Lord Jesus in faith. It's trust in Jesus' power, in Jesus' promises, in Jesus' presence, in Jesus' wisdom that enables us to not be filled with fear. See, relying on ourselves is a fool's game because we are truly fools if we think we can control all the factors that determine the outcome in life. But Jesus has the power. That's what these events tell us. He has the power over the wind and the waves, over sickness, even over death itself. And he's come to establish a new deliverance, a new exodus for the new people of God through the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so when we stop trusting in ourselves and our power and turn back to God in repentance and with faith in Jesus, that's when our fears of failure or of conflict or of the future or of death or of sickness, that's when our fears subside because we've reached out to Jesus in faith. We've entrusted ourselves to his promises and power and presence and wisdom. And he said to us, don't be afraid. The second point to take home is this. Those who reach out to Jesus in faith have no need to fear him anymore. See, when people came face to face with Jesus' power in these episodes, they were terrified. The disciples, when Jesus calmed the storm, the townspeople, when Jesus healed the man with the unclean spirits, the woman with the bleeding problem, the disciples, when they see Jesus walking on the water, they're terrified, and rightly so. Jesus comes with the full power and authority of the Lord God himself. You don't want to get on the wrong side of that power. And yet to those who reach out to him in repentance and faith, like the woman cured of the bleeding problem, Jesus says, go in peace, your faith has saved you. To the terrified disciples, when they see him walking on the water, Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. See, to come face to face with the living Lord Jesus in all of his limitless power and authority, that is indeed a scary prospect. Especially when we know that his command to us is to repent and believe in him. And one day we know that we will see him face to face and we'll have to give an account of how we've responded to that command from Jesus. But the promise here is that for all who do reach out to him in repentance and faith, in all of his power and might, Jesus says to you, it's me, don't be afraid. I'll leave you with this observation then today from Mark's account. When we get to the very end of this section, it's actually a bit sad because while some people have not, while some people have clearly understood who Jesus is and reached out to him in faith, lots of people haven't. And at the very end of this section, Mark tells us that when they got back to shore, the crowds recognized Jesus. But all they do is they just bring him their sick for healing. They don't recognize him as anything more than just a healer. They haven't really understood who he is. 
Have you got who Jesus is? Have you grasped that he is the Lord God amongst us, bringing a new deliverance for all who put their faith in him? Have you reached out to him in repentance and faith so that you don't have to be afraid anymore?